This is a podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. This University College Dublin Symposium examined the role of visual culture in constructing and critiquing the Irish Free State and national identity in the aftermath of political independence. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online. In this podcast, The Vibrant Studio, Margaret Clark's Performative Femininities and 1920s Painting, a paper by Fiona Barber. I think what I'm going to be saying is kind of something that, to some extent, is going to go against the grain a bit of uh, the papers that we've uh, that we've just heard, which is which is fine. Um, and I also want to start by saying how I'm going to finish, which is by sketching out some potential readings for two paintings by Margaret Clark, um, Mary Magdalene Ascension from 1927, and the Wife, also known as the Haircut from 1926 to 27. Um, and I am saying sketching, uh, sketching out some meanings because that it's, uh, I think um, it's a fairly provisional reading at this stage. Now, although one has a religious theme and the other is more of a contemporary genre painting, both suggest a view of women and the representation of femininity that break with more normative conventions. And despite their striking iconography and unusual subject matter, I'm also interested in how they might be read in, uh, in terms of a, a wider cluster of meanings. Painted in the mid-1920s by a woman artist whose reputation until recently has been largely overshadowed by her more famous husband, the illustrator and stained glass artist Harry Clark, on one level they acquire significance within a feminist project of retrieval of forgotten women artists. In an Irish context, this can be seen as represented by Emer O'Connor's edited collection, Irish Women Artists, 1800-2009, Familiar But Unknown, which included Carla Briggs's essay on Margaret Clark as a history painter, uh, focused on a reading of the, the painting Stringbergian. And this was in turn followed some years later, in 2017, by an important exhibition of Clark's work organised by the National Gallery of Ireland and the F.E. McWilliams Studio Gallery in Banbridge. <laughs> now this project of rediscovery and rehabilitation of overlooked women has been an important part of feminist art history since its emergence in the 1970s. And in Ireland in particular, the groundbreaking 1987 exhibitions, Irish Women Artists, Artists from the 18th Century to the Present Day, um, held jointly in galleries across Dublin, the National Gallery, the Hugh Lane and the Douglas Hyde, which expanded our historical awareness of women artists in Ireland. And I'm consciously trying to articulate a feminist uh, historiography here as a means of situating um, a kind of current degree of knowledge of the work of Clark and other Irish women artists. As Yvonne Scott noted in the foreword to O'Connor's collection, with regard to women and other groups marginalised by art history, attention is needed to ensure their recovery and level the playing field. 
However, as Scott continues, rather than maintaining their distinction from the mainstream, it should be part of part of the strategies. Whoops, there we go. That was a quick flash of Margaret Clark in an earlier life. Um, it should be part of the strategies of post-colonial, post-modern art history and criticism um, in a globalized environment to examine the work of the marginalized, not just to redress injustice, but to explore it as a productive space in its own right. It is important, in other words, to go beyond the empirical and additive project of retrieval alone in order to ask further questions of paintings that acknowledge this status of marginality as a precondition for situating their meaning back within the circumstances within which they are made, and in consequence, both expanding and challenging existing art historical accounts of that time, and in this case, our knowledge of art in Ireland of the 1920s. So the ultimate question I want to ask is, how might the meanings of these two paintings by Margaret Clark be informed by our understanding of the construction of femininity in 1920s Ireland? Now, I'm being deliberately speculative here. On one hand, because this paper is a first attempt at tracing the entanglement of different strands of potential meanings of these works, and on the other, because neither of the works themselves, um, Ascension or the Haircut, could claim in any way to be documentary of women's lived experience in the free state. What I'm suggesting is a more subtle and nuanced reading that takes account of the processes and means whereby the more extensive historical shifts taking place in the wider world beyond the studio become filtered and mediated. And there are two areas of agency that I want to focus on at this point. One is Margaret Clark's own practice as an artist whose work of the 1920s produced in collaboration with her model, Julia O'Brien, who was also the children's nurse and at times general housekeeper within the Clark household, featured a remarkable range of images of women through her subject pictures, including both Mary Magdalene and the wife. Both of these paintings also include identifiable male sitters in significant roles. The artist's seven-year-old son, David, the youngest of her three children, posed as the angel in Mary Magdalene, which we'll see again in a few minutes, while Julia O'Brien's brother, Dan, who worked in the kiln room of the Clark Studios, was the model for the male figure in the wife or the haircut. The second factor is one that concerns where these pictures were painted. The artist's studio at the top of the house in Dublin's North Circular Road, where the family had lived since 1922, as a particular kind of space that enabled the production of these works. I want to focus for a moment on the second of these two factors. The title of, these, of, this, pain, of this paper, The Vibrant Studio, is borrowed from Rona Richmond Keneally and Lucy McDermott's edited collection, The Vibrant House, um, Irish Writing and Domestic Space, a selection of memoirs and critical essays on a range of interpretations of the Irish home that combine metaphorical readings with its corresponding existence in physical, spatial and, um, and material terms. It is worth staying with this for a moment as it has implications 
for how I want to see the role of Margaret Clark's studio space in the formation of her paintings. For the editors of this collection, it is not just the physicality of these houses that is significant, but how it interacts with the way these spaces are conceptualised. For Richmond Keneally, for, uh, for example, domestic space becomes legible um, as a visual and spatial milieu that deserves to be acknowledged for its role as a transformative agent, fundamentally shaping the very being of its occupants. Richmond Keneally and McDermott's approach is in itself informed by developments in new materialist thinking associated with the work of Karen Barad or Jane Bennett. In this theory, physical matter ceases to be regarded as inert or passive, but as an active, or to use Bennett's term, vibrant agent, working in conjunction with human actions to produce a range of affective meanings and consequences. As Rona Richmond Keneally continues in her introduction to the volume, this suggests the potential for revised readings of agential capabilities of Irish domestic space, including aspects of the material and spatial qualities of the house's architectural design as facilitating different kinds of interactions, experiences and thought processes. Okay, now what interests me about this interpretation is how it might be applied to an understanding of the role played by Margaret Clark's studio in the making of paintings such as Mary Magdalene or The Wife. As Richmond Keneally points out, the architecture of a Dublin Victorian house made the top floor a place of selective access to more private spaces. Published accounts, such as Carla Briggs' catalogue essay from 2017 and Nicola Gordon Bowe's monograph on Harry Clark, mention in passing that Margaret had a studio situated upstairs in the premises of the family stained glass business in North Frederick Street. This was certainly the case after Harry's death in 1931, but prior to this, her studio was at the top of the house in North Circular Road. Establishing a professional space within the family home would have been the practical solution for a woman artist who was also the mother of young children during the 1920s. This was a situation that, that also provided much of her subject matter, the portraits of her children, such as Anne Clark, um, painted in around 19, 1924, um, or the regular access to Julia O'Brien, who combined both domestic labour uh, with her work as a, as a model. Now, unfortunately, um, no photographs appear to survive um, that give a further indication of the layout or the contents of the studio. We can, perhaps, get a sense of, of what <coughs> this space might have looked like from this depiction of Harry Clark at work in an upstairs room in North Circular Road. This looks like a studio. It may well have been Margaret's studio. The furnishings look much too provisional to be um, part of a living space, I think, within a, um, a middle-class home, much more suggestive of a kind of working space and what it might have contained. Even if there are no photographs, what we do have, although in very different forms, are traces of the studio's affective agency. There is the range of imaginative depictions, primarily of female subjects, envisaged and staged within the studio, 
that also include Ophelia or Bath Time at the Crash um, from around 1925. There's also, I think, a tantalising glimpse of the studio's material culture. The figure of the black child in Bath Time at the Crash, at the centre of this, this painting, appearing here in conjunction with a double portrait of Julia. She appears both in this figure in the foreground and also in the background. And those of Clark's children and relatives was derived from the carved head of a black infant that she kept in the studio. The somewhat archaic red dress that Julia wears in many of these paintings also appears to be a well-used prop, whose materiality actively contributes to the meaning of the pictorial context um, in which it appears. Yet in sharp contrast to this range of, of fictive scenarios in the paintings that emerged from the North Circular Road attic are the, are the childhood recollections of David Clark. The presence of the studio, it seems, was felt throughout the house, which was continually permeated by a smell of turpentine. The studio itself, where, as a seven-year-old, he posed for the angel in Mary Magdalene, he recalled in not entirely positive terms, um, and this, uh, this is according to um, his surviving partner, Fiona Griffin, um, as a very austere place, terribly cold in winter, where he was likely to be given a whack of a paintbrush on his legs if he was naughty. The studio, then, was clearly a domain where Margaret Clark had full agency and control. This was, however, in sharp contrast to the changing situation for women outside the home in Ireland at this time. After 1922, um, as Marianne Gianella Valiolis has observed, Women were central to how the free state defined itself as a virtuous and moral Catholic nation, just as, as they had also been central to the, the preceding struggles for independence. As a result, women's citizenship became increasingly identified with their place in the home and the family, rather than as active within public life. Repeated gender legislation throughout the decade that would provide a context for the marriage bar of 1931, was oriented around women's role in the family. The justification for restrictions on women undertaking jury service, enacted in 1924 and then again in 1927, was that women needed to be at home to look after their children, and especially to be there to cook an evening meal for their husbands when they returned from work. Now, Clark's own situation had changed considerably from the, the previous decade. From a working-class family in Newry, as Margaret Crilly, she had been one of the leading lights in a stellar generation of art students that also included Sean Keating and Beatrice Elvery, later Glenavy, under, Michael, under William Orpen's tuition at the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art. In 1914, in, abs in Orpen's absence, she took over his life-drawing class, where she taught for the next five years. 1914 was also the year that she married her fellow student, Harry Clark. Although for the next few years, she resolutely continued to develop a career as a professional woman artist, this proved difficult to maintain with a growing family. 
One consequence of this, and also due to financial constraints, was that she did not have the opportunities to travel to Paris or elsewhere that so significantly shaped Mamie Jellet's encounter with modernism in the studios of, of Lot and Glaze. Instead, she read and collected books on art history and contemporary art, also subscribing to the leading art journal, The Studio. So I, I get the sense that although she couldn't actually travel in space at this point, she was kind of travelling in time instead um, as a, a means of, of um, kind of compensating or um, in, in some way. Um, which is why... Um, yes, so she had this kind of knowledge of contemporary art, and, um, and uh, so which is why it, it why which is why it must have been particularly galling to read Thomas Bodkin's well-intentioned review of her successful exhibition at the Dublin Painters Gallery in 1924. Before her marriage, Mrs. Clark was well known in Ireland as one of the most brilliant of that remarkable group of students which Sir William Orton fostered. Since her marriage, the cares of a growing household restricted Mrs. Clark's artistic production. But she has lately found leisure to return again to her studio. Um, and it makes my blood boil as a feminist art historian. So I can imagine what it must have been like to actually read that being said about you as an artist. So what Bodkin saw as the leisure activity of a middle-class woman... It's clear from uh, Margaret Clark's acerbic reply, and she wrote back to him in no uncertain terms, um, that what was at stake was the working life of a professional female artist. Throughout the 1920s, she established a reputation as a successful portrait painter with commissions such as that of Eamon de Valera in 1928, Yet there is also this group of other paintings that, are, um, that fit less easily into this construction of a professional public persona. And rather than conforming to the hegemonic expectations of women within the family, these are works, I think, that investigate female identity in ways that are often more subversive. In doing so, paintings such as Ascension or Mary Magdalene or The Wife, The Haircut, also differ considerably from other representations of women at the time. Um, and I, I want to go back to Sean Keating here um, and his inclusion of his wife accompanied by their young children in Night's Candles are, are burnt out. And I know, Emma, from reading your book, just how complex the figure of May is. Um, and, you know, that should not be in, underestimated. Um, but in this painting, they're pointing into this kind of brave new world somewhere beyond Ardna Crusher and the dam taking shape on the, on the canvas. And in this particular painting, it's hard to imagine women's roles as um, wives and mothers as more, you know, any more completely aligned with the trajectory of decolonization and modernization. So for me, no matter what a complex and interesting person May was, within those representations, there's something, I think, very different that's, that's coming across. And even Mamie Jellett's radically innovative decoration of 1923... Uh, was also underpinned by a Catholic religious iconography identified with the moral expectations of women in the new free state, the Madonna and Child. Um, so I don't want to try and pose here um, like Clark good, Jellet bad, that kind of opposition. I'm just trying to uh, suggest a range of representations. <laughs> 
What Margaret Clark does with religious iconography in her painting at the time is a bit different. Instead, in Ascension, she focuses on the figure of Mary Magdalene. Represented in the Bible as a former prostitute, she therefore signifies a very different female identity to the containment of sexuality within the nuclear family. Um, and I think it's also um, significant that an earlier kind of popular iconography of the Magdalene is the idea of the penitent Magdalene, um, who is kind of repenting her sins in, in some way. This is very much a moment, I would suggest, of female ecstasy um, being signified through her pose. And it's obviously kind of derived from her reading of El Greco. Again, this sense of, like, she couldn't go to Paris, but she could go back in time and uh, situate herself within, in relation to art history as a means of kind of both acknowledging and reinterpreting a canon. Um, but... Uh, this, the, the kind of the uh, figure of Julia posed as Mary Magdalene makes me think that she might have been looking at Bernini's Saint Teresa as well. Um, so it's a very different kind of reading, I think, of a female religious subject at a point where, um, uh, within the public construction of women's citizenship, uh, Catholic morality um, and the image of the Madonna is playing such an important role. And also, of course, the significance of the Magdalene as well um, in relation to the Magdalene laundries at this point and how this is kind of publicly associated with uh, kind of deviant female sexuality. Um, also, I think the red dress as well. Um, she uses this as also in uh, Bath Time at the Crash, um, where I've um, suggested elsewhere that um, this is a painting that's, that is possibly, on one level, as signifying the spectre of miscegenation. Um, but again, it's to do with this sense of, of women's sexuality and identity as being uncontrolled and unregulated within normative channels. So again, this is, I think, part of the materiality of the studio in terms of the objects that it contains that actively contributes to, uh, to the meaning um, of the work. And then finally, to return to this painting, The Wife, The Haircut, from uh, 1926 1927. Um, again, although it's, um, it's posed by Julia and her brother, Dan, um, what struck me, though, when I first looked at this painting was how like Harry Clark um, <laughs> this particular figure appears to be. <laughs> um, and this is where you kind of begin to enter the realms of speculation. Um, and um, I think, you know, and the, the kind of the rumours, the, the sort of the, the public persona of the happy marriage that was also an artistic kind of coupling in some ways. Um, you know, maybe there's traces of like different kinds of readings and interpretations that we can possibly find within the paintings. Um, again, she's looking back within the studio, looking back in time uh, to Carafaggio, um, Judith beheading Holofernes. Um, which I think undoubtedly she, she would have known. It's probably the best-known representation um, of uh, this particular subject matter, of this, again, a biblical heroine who breaks the mould um, as, uh, 
um, a Jewish woman who goes out and seduces the um, Assyrian general Holofernes, um, or allegedly seduces him, but actually drugs him, so nothing bad really happens. Um, and then until she cuts off his head, of course. Um, and um, how this became a, a sort of a paragon and a part of, part of an iconography of female virtue and resistance. Um, the, I suppose, like my um, kind of role, my kind of feminist art historical imagination would love it if, if I could have thought that she'd seen Artemisia Gentileschi's version. Um, however, I think this is possibly unlikely because um, it was a painting that, as far as I can tell, was not widely known um, outside Italy or probably outside Rome, um, really, until the 1970s with the beginnings of feminist art history. Uh, and again, this is part of the project where I want to take this. It actually means like going back and looking at the sort of art books that Margaret Clark might have read about um, the Baroque and the Renaissance to see just whether it does figure at some point. Um, however, what we have got is Carafaggio. Um, and what I think she does is actually something very different um, than what Carafaggio does with, again, this sort of construction of the painting. Whereas here, this kind of, because you've got Judith standing on one side, like kind of cutting off Holofernes' head. And I think that's, it's been interpreted. I mean, it was one of the paintings that, fe this, uh, that featured in Griselda Pollock and Rosie Parker's groundbreaking Old Mistresses back in 1981. And at that point, they point to the squeamishness um, of the figure um, in, um, uh, that's, uh, in kind of carrying out this act. What I think is actually happening here is that the kind of the gap between the two figures this sort of gap, this kind of hole in the middle of the painting in some ways, instead of being about squeamishness, is actually something that is reworked in terms of menace um, and something that's actually much more kind of actively threatening. So finally, <laughs> um, unsurprisingly, many of these subject paint pictures remained unsold during her lifetime. At a time when women's identity is being firmly secured into compliant domesticity, these are paintings that take shape within a space within the family home, yet consistently work to undermine the expectations of women in the free state. Brought into being through the interaction between Margaret Clark, her knowledge, experience and collaboration with Julia O'Brien, and the materiality of the studio, its canvas, paint, and turpentine, in addition to what it contains. These are female subjects who are themselves vibrant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October, 2018 was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was organised by Roisin Kennedy and funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online.